Welcome back, everyone, to Beyond the Boundaries, a group relations podcast. I'm here today with our core four, Amber Williams. Hey, everyone. Lauren Levy. Hey. And my man, Rod Smith, a.k.a. Coach Love. What up, party people? It's good to see you all, folks. Welcome back. Um, So today, we're going to be talking about boundaries Um, And then we'll also talk about boundaries and authority and role. So where would we all like to begin today? Not like in conference, but like, who would we like to start off with today? (laughs) Not where, because we know where we are today. (laughs) Maybe trying to define or talk about what boundaries are. Uh, what authority might be and what roles might be just to give a baseline for what uh, for our listeners to understand and then uh, go from there in a group relations space and in the world as we know or maybe we don't boundaries create safety and help mitigate anxiety they can be protective they're important There can be obviously some downsides to boundaries. Sometimes you don't like people's boundaries or they prevent you from crossing borders that you might want to cross. But in a group relations space, we talk a lot about boundaries um, because they help create structure and they make for a very safe container to explore some of the really tough topics that we tend to get into in group relations spaces. So there's different types of boundaries that exist. Obviously, there's like physical boundaries, how close you are to another person in proximity um, or like what you're cool with them doing touch-wise near you or to you. There's like physical boundaries with regard to relational space across the room, how far chairs are from each other, et cetera, et cetera. There is boundaries around environments sometimes where you're supposed to do X thing in X space, and that is the environmental boundary. There's also boundaries around like the task that you're supposed to be carrying out, which we also talk a lot about in group relations spaces. Um, And that plays out in workspaces outside of that, where I guess... You have a role that you sign up to do, which we'll talk about, Um, but that role usually comes with a task. Um, Those are some of the boundaries that are coming to mind for me. Does someone else want to fill in on others? Rod's excited. Jump in, Rod. Come on in. (laughs) No, I... I, I I didn't have anything else. I was just going to, I mean, I think for the purposes of, of this particular podcast, I, I think that pretty much covers it, right? So boundary might be the physical space and then maybe time, you know, associated with, you know, whatever is within that boundary um, that would be another one. Uh, but in the context of what we're talking about today, I, I think that's a really great one. And as you were speaking, Lauren, I was actually thinking about uh, the boundaries of authority, right? And so that's where I went with it. Uh, authority being, you know, um, um, being, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, empowered or asked to serve a particular uh, power or action on behalf of a group. Um, 
And so what exactly does that mean? Uh, one of the easiest examples I can think of when I think about like a formal authority is uh, kind of like a job description, right? Um, an organization has asked you via this job description to do something on behalf of the group. And uh, it happens in an informal context as well, uh, informal authority, uh, which gets at, you know, kind of what uh, informal or personal authority is what we call it uh, in group relations, uh, which gets at, you know, kind of like your life experiences, you know, those things that you uh, self-authorize, shall we say, to speak on behalf of uh, another group or on behalf of a cause. Uh, but that is something that's internal to, to the experience. So that's where I was going, Lauren, when you were talking about uh, uh, boundaries and kind of segueing into boundaries around authority. And then I guess we can go into which sets up the roles. So mm -hmm. can't, can't we also say, too, though, like I can give informal authority to another person just by the way that I take them in? Like maybe, Rod, I would give you informal authority because to me, the fact that you're in a male body means something to me, or the fact that, you know, I know that you used to write poetry means something to me. And so I, turn to you more, I'm drawn to you more, um, or you stand out to me. And that's another way of giving or getting informal authority that maybe you don't take on yourself, but another person, you know, puts on to you. Right? Right. Uh, so when you're in an informal setting, um, you know, in social groups in general, that is definitely a, one way that it does come up. Um, and yeah, it, it, it can be the recognition, I guess, in other circles, deeper other other circles, not to get too academic here, but, um, you know, expertise kind of goes a long way. And I think that's part of what you were getting at, Lauren. And then the other part of that is just the society and the uh, culture that you grew up in. You know, it may favor, you know, a particular social identity over another, um, which gets into a whole slew of other dynamics around boundaries and, and, and authority. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could maybe stay here for a minute and just talk about like our own examples or experiences that we have of like either us taking up some type of informal authority role in a space um, and also, or also um, people putting something onto you and you finding that out later, like something being revealed to you. Um, one thing that I can think about um, is Lauren and I were at the same training together um, for a small group consultation training some years ago. And this girl who I had been in conference work with one other time showed up to this space. And so we had already had a pretty tumultuous back and forth in that one space. Um, in our small group, we were in small group together that we had four or five small groups. And like, she was so convinced that like, I didn't like her and like spent all this energy and time trying to like force herself into my good graces. And I was just like perplexed and confused and was the only black female body person in my small group other than our consultant at the time who um, now is a good friend. Um, but anyways, it was weird. And then to see her again, I was like, oh no, like this person is back. And so luckily we were in the same group. And we were able to work together. And I found out that like at the end of that training, I reminded her of her ex-partner. And so like all of these emotions and things and ways that she deferred or like wanted to be in my good graces were like about her unreconciled 
things with her ex-partner who I guess, you know, she has some type of relationship with or feels it's some type of, has some type of authority, whether, you know, emotionally given or, you know, in other ways. And so that was interesting. And so I've seen that person one other time since then at another conference space. And like, I can at least like appreciate what they stand for now because we were able to like work through all that and get to the other side of our dynamic. And had we not, you know, had the space or had this technology to do that. And I just like only had, you know, only had one interaction with them. Like, I don't know that I would have gotten to the other side of that. And so that's just one of those like interesting ways of like, this is not something that I asked for. I don't even know who this person is. I probably will never meet that person a day in my life, but because I remind someone of, you know, someone that they know, these are all the other snowball effects and dynamics that can happen after when people rely on their ladder of inference. So I don't know if others have ones they want to share. All eyes are on Manning. No, nobody can see me on there. No, but um, so here's the thing. I was thinking about it, right? Because Amber, you just, you just blew my mind because you said emotional authority. That is something I didn't mean. I, I'd never heard actually and so like to me i'm like what does that mean and i don't know just immediately made me think that there are certain people in our lives that we're emotionally connected to and because of that emotion we give authority to them does that mean that they should be an authority depends on who that person is so i don't know um but it does make me it does make me think about that that was interesting my experience around boundaries um, um especially with authority you know, I think for me, and I think I spoke to this a little bit in other episodes that, you know, going to conferences, um, you know, identifying and figuring out who is the authority in the room, who am I supposed to listen to? And then, um, you know, I think the other thing about it is when you have authority, what are what are, what are the boundaries? And I, I think these are things that get covered, especially if you're like on staff, if, you, if you've been given a staff position um, at a conference. And so, you know, you're in authority in some way. Um, I've been in authority in a small group and um, being a small group consultant. And even in that, I'm constantly like, what are my own boundaries as a consultant to this small group? Um, and it was interesting because there was this one time where um, the door was closed. but And so I'm the small group consultant. I closed the door, but then one of the students wanted the door cracked, left cracked open. And so they went and opened the door and cracked it open. And so I just kind of sat there with that and just kind of played with the group to say, you know, what are you all doing with my authority right now? Um, kind of taking up things the way you want and kind of doing what you want with the boundary. Um, but in my mind, I'm like, man, this was never clear, like made clear, like, you know, if someone opens the door, do we do we close it or what happens? And a lot of this is experiential, but it does make me think about like to uh, to Rod's point about in our regular lives when we're working, we have a job description, we have a role, and we have authority in that job description and role. But sometimes, what if we you know want to do more so we can so we can be seen as doing more so we can get to that next level on on the totem pole, if you will, and so. At what point do you step outside of your actual role? At what point do you step outside the boundaries that's been set for you within your role, you know, to go and do that other thing that necessarily, quote unquote, wasn't asked, you know, of you? And so that's kind of really where my complexity has been with understanding boundaries and authority and my experience kind of, you know, 
taking taking those up and then actually identifying boundaries for myself. I find that that's been a, a very challenging thing for me to do. Yeah. So I think you're bringing up for me the idea of like discernment too, is like how open or closed is the organization or whatever that you're trying to do things in, right? Or how rigid or how fluid is the organization or the structure? Because I'm like, for some things, it's like, I need you to do this thing and nothing more because there's going to be some type of ripple effect that like impacts, you know, the organization or the system in some type of way. But for other things, it's like, oh, like, feel free to take up your authority as you see fit. Here's kind of like the broad brush of what you need to do. And like, you can kind of make it your own. And I feel like that's kind of just like weighing like what's at risk, what's at stake. Like, you know, if I'm trying to prove myself, like, is it proving myself with only the ego in mind? Or is it proving myself while also seeing the benefit that it will have on others um, or on the organization of the system? So um, not that's like where it made me think of. <clears throat> also, is it a disrespect to the person in authority? You know, because if you have, a, if you're a subordinate, a subordinate to someone else, and here you are trying to go outside the boundaries to go do this thing, you know, what does that mean about how you respect authority and who that person is in authority? Because I feel like that can change too, depending on who that is. Mm-hmm. I feel like for me, when I think about um, authority, like formal authority and informal, I guess, specifically, the thing that was coming up for me to share about was more like my own learnings from group relations spaces about who I give informal authority specifically and who I don't. Um, So I learned in these spaces that I give a lot of authority to um, people of color and specifically black people. And sometimes I give a lot of authority to men and sometimes I actually just completely erase them. So I think it depends a lot on the setting. And I've also learned that I give a lot of authority, informal authority to other queer folks and trans folks specifically or non-binary folks specifically I realized that actually probably over the last like two weeks I was in a GR training and it was just like confirmed for me and I just saw the way I was interacting with with people that hold that identity and um I think I've also learned that I tend to deauthorize or like take away informal authority from some other groups of people of color, specifically and most consistently like Asian folks. And I was able to do a lot of work in this past GR training, which was run by um, an Asian American female around that and to sort of like um, interact with people who I, who are Asian and in a different way than I had put energy into before. Um, and kind of shift my thinking now that I have awareness about the fact that I'm doing this to stop doing that because it's up to be doing that. Um, but those are like some of the things that have stood out to me as people that I give informal versus like informal authority to versus like deauthorizing them 
And the same thing sort of happens to me with accents I've noticed. Sometimes I really authorize people who have like different accents and sometimes I deauthorize. Um, so I think that's kind of what I was holding to share about an example of how this is maybe like played out for me in my learning from GR Spaces. I'm curious, Lauren, um, you shared about like the different ways that you give or don't give authority to certain people, but you only commented on like wh which one you feel like is fucked up slash or needs correcting when you talked about like deauthorizing Asian folks. So like, I'm curious, like, do you feel like you've assessed the rest of them and you feel like the rest of them you are okay, are okay with <laughs> and like, that's the one you're not okay with? Or like, I'm just curious about like why that was the one that you spoke to. Um, and is that easier to speak to than maybe some of the other ones or I don't know. I think it's a good question. Um, I definitely think I should give authority to all people of color, but I definitely think like genuinely like giving informal authority to black people is like a yes. And I'm glad that I genuinely feel that way because if I didn't, that would also be in the fucked up category of like, okay, that's racist. Like you need to figure out why it is that you're erasing this group of people or minimizing their authority but it's a good question, right? Because like with men specifically, like I know that it's problematic that my lens to continue to look at men and give them informal authority when it's toxic masculinity that's being carried out is very problematic. And continuing to do that is also fucked up because then I'm still complicit in the issue. But I think that in my mind, I've had a lot more time or I've taken a lot more time now that you're bringing this up to work through my relationship with men and how I interact with toxic masculinity. Whereas like for working on or even realizing that I was doing this to Asian people specifically is like a newer thing. So that's why I'm like, that's f***ed up. This thing I know is like, fucked up but I know I keep swearing but I've like done enough analysis of it to be able to have a nuanced understanding of how I'm interacting with it I guess yeah so I guess the hope is that through this work we continue to have these experiences and you'll encounter more Asian authority and be able to have those nuanced ways of thinking about it or in your day-to-day -day life you have the technology now that you can be curious about how you do yeah it. Yeah, absolutely. Battles become a little bit more palatable as we cozy up to them in all mm -hmm. of the city. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Rod. I know you don't like swearing. I'm sorry. <laughs> what you mean? <laughs> I know you don't like it. Oh, I feel yeah, bad. I mean, I, 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 not... do, you, do you see what just happened? Yeah, I feel, I'm so sorry, Rod. My bad. <laughs> There goes that informal authority showing up. <laughs> I, I'm not really sure what to say about that. I, I do play basketball, and there are, there are a lot of cuss words that are shared, especially when you do something that you know you're not supposed to do or could do better. Mm -hmm. Fuck, Rod. You know, there it is. Thanks. Feel better? Yeah. All I right. feel mad. This is lovely. So, yeah, you know, I, I think for me, what came up in, in what you were sharing was just, you know, personal authority, 
right? And, and personal authority, and even just in general, the conversation around boundaries and boundaries and authority, and you know, eventually what we'll get to, I, I think today, you know, boundaries and role, depending on if, you know, how this conversation goes, is that we don't think about it. Like, it, it, I found in my time in group relations, it is a topic that we do not think about in our day-to-day lives, and we're really careless about it, you know, in terms of the boundaries around our personal authority, the boundaries around the authority that we've been given, the boundary that, uh, that, that, you know, formerly we've been given and informally people want to give to us, you know? Uh, and I think for me, you know, my biggest exploration in group relations has been around my personal authority. Like what, what do I, what authorizes me? How do I authorize myself? to speak for those things that I am passionate about, to speak for those things that, you know, I, I think are noble causes and noble purposes. And, and again, you know, all of that is informed by my lived experiences, you know, social identities, role identities, personal identities, um, all those play a role in that. And so there's a legacy, if you will, of ancestors that, when I think about, or I started to talk about personal authority that on behalf of their experiences that they have shared with me, you know, and either via their stories or the, the learnings, um, like my grandfather, for example, you know, saw his uh, father killed by the KKK. So that story that's been passed on to me when I see something uh, that is uh, egregious, especially, you know, in terms of racial justice, you know, I can feel some kind of way about that. And on behalf of that story and on behalf of the other stories that my grandparents have given me, my parents have given me, I, I feel like that I have been personally authorized, especially with, you know, my particular path and journey through life that, you know, I, if I have an opportunity to speak on it, you know, to speak on it and do something about it. So that's one of the things that I've taken away from my experiences in group relations. And that has been, you know, a gift to me, you know, in terms of the things that I do day to day and at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it gives space to like explore. I think what I was talking about before, right, is like unearthing un- unconscious biases and I think that group relations spaces creates the opportunity to bring to awareness what we're not consciously doing. I'm not consciously looking at an Asian person and minimizing or erasing them in my brain or not paying attention to what they're saying. But then once I have awareness about that, then I can be like, oh my gosh, this is an area that I'm clearly still very problematic and I want and need to stop doing that, especially if I'm going to sit here and say that I care about like making sure that anti-racism matters and works, you know? And that's why I appreciate the space so much because if I wasn't in group relations spaces, I'm not sure what other opportunities I would have to have that brought to conscious awareness, even if I did every single 101 training that every workplace ever gave me ever, I've never had, I don't think you can create the level of complexity that the learning in a group relations space teaches you about race relations or any pieces of identity and how you're interacting with them even outside our typical like realm of 
what we consider to be our intersectional identities. Yeah, and, and, and just to connect to, to what you were sharing and how I was making my connection with what you were sharing, Lauren, that, that piece around the unconscious, right? And I heard the unconscious bias piece, you know, so I'm glad that you named that because what I was referring to and in my personal growth and group relations was the my unconscious processes of deauthorizing my personal authority, mm-hmm. you know, to just walk into a room and have something to say and take myself out of the conversation for one reason or another. And just how much of my life experiences have played a role in that, unconsciously have played a role in that. So, mm-hmm. which then, you know, I, wasn't trying to get into the complexities, but yeah, it gets into a lot of complexities that ultimately leaves me in a space of, of just a capacity for compassion as I understand that it's not just me that does that, it's all of us do that on some level, mm-hmm. right? Unconsciously deauthorizing ourselves, unconsciously deauthorizing others, unconsciously authorizing others, unconsciously authorizing ourselves, and it, it becomes a, a conversation around the, the human condition for me mm-hmm. to where I go like, wow, if we're all doing it, then it really is just a matter of we're in this together and we're all learning. Yeah. And I think that's where the spirituality piece that Group Relations International really feels passionate about and its connection to Group Relations comes in. And, and that's in part because of the idea that like what's in me is also in everyone else. And a lot of times what we do as humans is we point at the other that we see as bad or less than or whatever, because we can't hold, right? We project what we can't hold onto another person, but really that thing is about us and we're not ready to see it. And I think um, that's why I really appreciate like group group relations international's position on the spirituality aspect, because it really is the core of like the human existence that we're all in this together and we all have, you know, all the good, all the bad within us, even if we don't want to own that. You know, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it's ironic. Cause I'm like, what's this kumbayaness about like this, you know, coming to one and like figuring it out and being okay with the things and the scars. And it's, it's like, it's not that easy. To, to really just, you know, identify the fact that like, you know, you have this unco- unconscious bias that's been playing out and then you identify that and then all of a sudden you're accepting of it to be like, oh yeah, like I want to be better. I want to do better. I think there's a layer of like shame that comes to the experience. There's a layer of like blaming yourself or maybe finding someone to blame, right? Because like when we go to unpack these things, you know, I'm talking about like, oh, yeah, my parents were like this. And, you know, I grew up in a household that was set up like that. And maybe that wasn't the right way to go. And so I'm like blaming them for it so I can step out of that. But like, that's not that's not easy. So I'm wondering, like, can we speak to that a little bit? Because I think that's part of the process. Right. Like, Lauren, did you I mean, and I don't want to point you out, but I'm just you know, you are the only, you know, white presenting person. Well, not presenting but white person <laughs> on the call. You're the only white white person on the call. And so you're speaking to an experience as a white person that I haven't really heard other white majority of white people speak to, you know, so and I don't again, I'm not trying to point you out, but the rest of us are black and 
And I think we can speak about it in different other aspects and other ways. Um, but do you, do you get where I'm going with that? Totally. And I can definitely speak to it. I think part of my job in this world, now that I get it, now that I realize that I'm white, um, which that sounds crazy, but literally like five years ago, I didn't realize like what it meant that I lived in this particular body. Um, but yeah, I definitely can speak to it. I think it's important that I can, but yeah, the shame is totally part of it. I mean, to be honest, I guess if we're going to go into it, like me and Amber met at a group relations training and like I was very ignorant at that time and I said something that I quickly realized in my own brain and the group confirmed was racist and bad and wrong and I was trying to actually like bring Amber into the group because they were being very quiet at that time. And I was trying to like, be like, Hey, what's up with you? But instead I said a really like messed up thing and it, that happened. And that is literally what triggered like all the shame, all the guilt, all the like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that I didn't realize that that was such a terrible thing to have slipped out of my mouth and the impact of that. And I mean, that's literally how Amber and I connected because in that moment, we were actually able to connect afterward. Well, Amber connected with me, you know, I was like, oh my God, this person's gonna like never wanna speak to me ever again. And obviously for those that know, that's not the way the story panned out, but you know, that that experience in and of itself combined with an earlier experience in my group relation mentors class also around uh experience where um it was like a a latin a girl in our group felt that me and one other white girl had we were consulting at the time and she felt that we were not focusing on the fact that she had shared that her mother was having all of these experiences and they were really hard and that was really upsetting to her long story short my experience with Amber and my experience debriefing that consulting thing with my mentor literally launched me into doing all of this work and education being like, there's this whole world of stuff that I'm carrying out that I didn't even realize like I was being so problematic and like, yeah, that's basically a huge part of why I'm still here because some of the most important teachings that I've had in my life, which are riddled with guilt and shame. Like I hate talking about that experience. I thought I was going to have to talk about that experience a few podcasts ago because everyone was speaking to around that. And I was like, should I say this? Should I not? And I didn't, but it is in part because it's like a very, like no one wants to sit and own the fact that like you have racist ideas in your brain or you're perpetuating racist ideas or you're saying racist things or you have unconscious biases like no one likes to sit in that and say that and own that it feels terrible to be an oppressor it feels terrible to know that just because of the body you're in or the things that you're doing that sometimes you don't even know that you're doing is actively initiating violence on another person and actually violence on a person who you can love so so much and have an extremely like close relationship with. And so the shame 
is important to talk about and happy to share about my experience, even though like now here I am, everything out on the table, right? But also it's real, it's true. And all of that shame and all of that uncomfortable learning, which, you know, comparatively, like my uncomfortable learning and sitting in my shame is not the experience of what y'all go through every single day in your bodies, right? Like, but that learning helped me to be a better person and hopefully be a better ally, depending on who you ask. And, you know, like, show up differently in the world. So I'm willing to sit in the shame and I'm willing to sit here and be like, yeah, I've done these things or I've said these things or I didn't know these things. And the only reason that I was able to do better was by like sitting in that shame and dealing with it and then doing something different, I guess. You know what I mean? I, thanks for thanks for taking that on because I'll be honest with you. Like for me, I've had I've had to experience I've experienced shame um, with the same idea around my experiences with with the Asian cultures and really, you know, growing up in my like I grew up in Boston, so really I was very familiar with Chinese. I was very familiar with Vietnamese, um, and really those were you know like most Asians that I that I considered were Asian. I had zero knowledge on all the Asian cultures that were out there until I moved to San Diego and learned a little bit more only to learn that there's so many more. And in all of that, it made me realize how when I was in spaces with Asian um, people, I was deauthorizing them in certain ways. Um, and it wasn't until I got called out on that by an Asian woman um, that I was taken back and I'm still taken back. I st and I was very, you know, close with this person before this happened, before they called me out. And we were actually working on staff together when she, you know, called me out. And it was the end of the semester, like couldn't do anything about it. And I was really left confused with it. And the only thing that left me to do was to be like, question myself and then identify the fact that I'm like this way and holding this shame, but then like doing a little bit of research only to, you know, say to myself, I'm still a little bit lost in this. I want to learn more. And it makes me feel like I need to go seek somebody out, like seek an Asian out to ask questions or every, anytime I get around and I'm like, Hey, I want to guess what kind of Asian you are. Like, you know what I mean? Like these kind of things. And it just feels like a rabbit hole. Like it actually doesn't like in real time, it's like, Ooh. And, and so I wonder if other people kind of have that experience too, where it's like, you have this shame and you're really trying to do the best around it. But then you get to the thing and then you end up deauthorizing the person even more because you don't even really know, you know, where to, where to, what, what you need to deal with. Well, I, I think, <laughs> I just don't even know where to go with that one. Uh, or where yeah. to start. Did I lose people? Did, was it too much? Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I, Huh? If, I, if I follow what you're sharing, Manny, it's that you there's a, a shame element to one having been around or have grown up around a particular social identity, and then you realize you've been part of this process, as Lauren has shared with her story, of deauthorizing or erasing that particular social identity. And then you find out, oh my goodness, I have all these different things to learn. 
And so you go and you find like the first YouTube video on the subject and you're like, oh, that's it. And now I know. And then you go and engage that social identity again, trying to tell people, oh, you watch that YouTube video and you just realize, wow, you just dug yourself in a deeper hole around trying to embrace, to take in, to fully authorize uh, that other social identity. Uh, if I heard that correctly, then I would say that um, that is what I was speaking to earlier about, you know, when you mentioned, you know, the, the whole holding hands kumbaya thing that, um, which in of itself has like a long story next to it, but we'll come back to that another time, I guess. But um, I would offer that that is part of the human conditioning, right? Uh, the human condition. And that is what group relations offers us is, is a place to understand that that is a dynamic that takes place that at the end of the day, and this is something that, you know, I'm kind of thinking through now is coming up for me in this conversation is that it's not possible to know everything mm -hmm. as much as we want to know everything yeah. and all the different ways that we either authorize or deauthorize or even what the boundaries around those are for every single individual or every single group that's out there. I mean, the groups are nuanced, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, um, for me, to your point, Manny, there, there, I guess there's like really two things that come up for me is that if you're at the end of the day, I guess my one of my hypotheses about things is that group relations allows people to experience and bump up against those places where there is shame. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you're willing to go there, um, it can offer you an incredible opportunity to explore that and to um, learn um, how to deal with that or to learn the gaps in the knowledge so that you can go and invest your time and energy into learning more about that. Uh, and, and if you're really lucky, you can do it with the group of people in which, uh, you know, you can really take up this idea of like, well, what, you know, because of what I know and how shame shows up for me, what roles then do I take up in a group that either perpetuate, you know, the dynamic or not? Mm -hmm. And I think that gets into, you know, I guess the second part of our conversation around the boundaries around roles, mm -hmm. right? Because depending on how you take up the authority, you can almost lock yourself into a role that either perpetuates, you know, uh, an authority or your interaction with that authority, uh, whether you are uh, promoting it or uh, er erasing it. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think to speak to that, and I think this is like a pretty complex thing, but it's something that I've been trying to work through is like I have noticed for me in group relations spaces I get sucked into the role of being just like the projection of me being a white girl and nothing else 
is one that gets put on to me. And, and historically in the past, I take on, but I know now when I'm taking that on, I become very like performative and like nervous and anxious about every little thing that I'm saying. And I can't actually connect or be authentic or empathetic or actually build a bridge in those moments. And so I think that I've very recently learned that like actually doing that is like, obviously being performative in any way is not helpful at the end of the day. But I think that I've been working on allowing myself to be okay. One, if people don't know that I'm queer, because I'm doing a lot of work around like what it means to me that I need everyone to know that I'm queer besides the fact that people think I don't look queer, whatever that means. And it's an identity that's very important to me and my life. And then also, can I be cool with people looking at me as just a white girl with nothing else to offer and have the confidence within myself to take on a different role to know that I'm more than that and I can show up for the group and still be a white girl and still be a queer white girl, but can I show up in a different role where there's other pieces of me that can be revealed or utilized to support the group in a different way? And I think it's sometimes hard to do that. In general, people will want to see you the way that they want to see you sometimes with what you're saying, Lauren. Yeah. Now, me, I'm going to see you the way that you want to be seen. But what you just said to me made me think about my own challenges around the boundaries that I set as it relates to all these different roles that we hold or all these different identities that we hold. And I think that's that's kind of where I was kind of speaking to in like, you know, in terms of of the struggle that we hold when we're when we're doing something, when we have a role and the boundaries that we have around the way we want people to take us up in that role that we're holding. So I just, I just wanted to I didn't mean to be aggressive, you know, with my male toxic masculinity, but I just, you know, I thought I'd I'd react to that. <laughs> But I think, yeah, it was kind of an aggressive one. But I, I'm thinking about like the role that you just took up right there, Manny, right? So you mentioned about, um, and I, I guess I just want to extend or expand upon what you just shared, you know, with Lauren saying that, hey, you people will see Lauren the way that people see, but you, I, right, will see Lauren as you want to be seen. And I, I'm not sure that that's the way that we operate with folks that are not in our immediate friend circles, you know? And and I think the Group Relations Conference offers us an opportunity to do that, to see how and where we, what roles we place people in. And so when I started thinking about roles, I started to think about like, well, what exactly does that role mean, right? And it seems like, you know, for me, I've, I've come to that role means uh, something, uh, it's the actual action, your actual relationship with the group and with the group members in order to get the task of the group accomplished. Um, and so, I mean, there's some literature pieces around like what that kind of looks like, but you have a person that's a leader, you have a person that, you know, might be a, a helper, you know, a, a mediator, someone who's monitoring, you know, how the relationships are going. Uh, you might have a scapegoat, someone that no matter what they do, That's they are me. going to be, they are going to be the reason why everything went wrong. 
I'm not sure if that scapegoat is you, Manny. Sometimes. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that what you I heard? Have... No. I, I, yeah. <laughs> That's not you. I, 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 I would verify that. <laughs> I, I would probably put you more in a mediator relationship type role, personally monitors of different relationships. But that being shared, though, I mean, there are a number of other different roles depending on what kind of game you're playing. Um, mm. But that's, that's just sort of the, the, I guess, getting us on the page with what we mean by roles. But I think that, you know, just for me as an example, uh, in groups, I, I tend to take a more vocal role, especially if I'm a member in the uh, you know, in the in a conference or in a classroom setting, you know, um, something of a thinker and and something of a uh, I can listen, you know, with the best of them and and put a lot together, I guess, if you will. Data from Star Trek comes to mind, uh, but who knows? I was. You see what I'm saying? You're saying data from. I don't see. You know what I'm saying? I don't see you that way. But if that's how you want me to see you. I can do that. It's it's a role that I, I kind of want to put myself in at times, and it's one that I've also been told I need to shut the F up because no one wants to hear what Data has to say all the time. So mm. I leave it alone. So, Rod, to what you're saying then, when you come to a conference and you know, you know, you know what the typical roles are of like the authority and then you have the members in the group, you know, you're, you're when you come there, I mean, you don't. I, you don't put your full, you know, how you're identifying out there for everyone to actually take you in as, you know, all the different ways that you want to be taken like that. That doesn't just happen. Like, that's a struggle because I, I know I've done it. Like, has that been the experience with you or any of you? Well, to answer your question real briefly, yeah, you know, that that is a struggle because, I mean, there are other things like, for example, I personally do not see myself as like an attractive person. That's not the first thing that comes in my mind. Like I see myself as the middle school nerd who wore his pants all the way up to his chest and tucked his shirt tail into his underwear. That that was me, right? That's what I see day to day. But the comments have been shared, you know, in my experiences in group relations, uh, that would suggest that, you know, yeah, I, I might be something of an attractive person, but I, I personally don't see that. And that's how, and I'm not, I'm not really even offering that as something, you know, to, to you know, really expand upon, but it, it's, it's, it, it allows me to show up in a very different way. And when we start talking conversations about race and you couple that with, you know, a, um, I would say a fairly soft talker, I mean, it, it brings about other associations that may allow me to say something or get away with saying something that a white person might say the exact same thing, and it gets construed in a completely different way. Uh, or another, you know, black body, if you will, could say it, and it would get construed in a very, very, very different way, even though we're coming from similar spaces around upset and frustration. So that's to your point, Manny, you know, it's, and then for, in other cases, it's kind of dangerous, you know, to put out there every part of the role that I might play uh, because some groups might not like that role, you know, and they might, you know, try to 
wipe that out or erase that or erase me from that role. And I've seen that happen too for me, which is not typically a fun experience, but definitely a learning one. Does that answer your question, Manny? Yeah, I mean, the, the question was invited to the group, you know, so I appreciate you for sharing, Rod. Lauren, Amber, anything to answer Manny's question? What was the question again? No, it was a, it was a lot. <laughs> no, well, I was asked, I was at, oh, go ahead. You got it, Amber, go ahead. No, I said I didn't want to be that person, but thank Lauren for taking up that role. <laughs> So I was asking, I was saying, when you come to a conference, you know, Lauren, and all the ways that you listed that you want people to 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 take you in as, you know, when mm -hmm. you get to a conference as a member, like, it's not easy to just meet people you'd never met before and then say, hey, you know, you know, I'm queer and I want you to take me in that way. Like, I don't think you you go straightforward and put that out there that happens through conversations that happens in other ways so like can we talk about what that experience has looked like for y'all the experience of revealing your non-visible identities i mean is there a challenge with it like because we're talking about like you know boundaries right so as boundaries relate to roles how do you what what do you want people to know about you what don't you want them to know about you what do you feel cool with what don't you feel cool with and when coming to a conference how does that play out I mean, for me, I I don't feel uncool with most things being revealed unless I feel like someone is, unless I feel like someone else is trying to get me to expose something for like their own agenda. So like at a conference um, at the National, me and Lauren went together to New Orleans and we were in large group and we knew a lot of people. Like but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so there's a lot of relationships and pairs and triads and dyads and everything else. And in large group, one session, um, one person who will remain nameless was like persistent on trying to get like uh, one of the dyads and that included me in the large group exposed to the rest of the large group. And like, for me, like what serve, what purpose is that serving for the collective of this large group? Because it wasn't as if like we were very active in that space at that moment. It wasn't like the topic related to us where there have been conferences where like I have been very active in a large group space and something about my relationship to another person is helpful for the group to learn. But like in that moment, it didn't feel that way at all. So like I refused to, um, but then the relationship was still revealed by somebody else. And like, for me, it was like, not so much about the relationship or the connection being revealed, but the way in which it was revealed for me. So like, I'm like, I think for me, like some people might come into a conference and be concerned of like being judged or being misconstrued or, people having associations to different identities. Like for me, I already know that like, that's a base level expectation of all humans in any space always. So like, I have nothing to fear about who I am. I can stand in my truth and like, it is what it is and it ain't what it ain't. But I think when it becomes like a manipulative thing of like, oh, reveal this thing so I can use it against you or so I could be the person that instigates this now, people wanting to be deeper inside of this thing that I know. And so now I can be the one to say, I know, but y'all don't know, but now y'all know. So now how do y'all feel about the fact that y'all know? Like, that's corny. Um, and then I think also like similar to like Lauren was saying, like, you're not gonna just walk into a group and be like, oh, I'm, I'm white, like I'm gay too. And like, I feel like there have been times in conferences where I feel like the white women specifically to like 
avoid the projections of being like erased as a white woman that's connected to white masculinity and patriarchy and, and racism that are like, well, here's my queer flag. Like, that's how I get to be down with the people that are not in power, I guess, for whatever reason that's alluring for white women that are queer in that space. So I feel like that's another pattern that I've seen and I'm sure other people do that too. Um, I know I did it when I applied to colleges, but like that's a specific thing to be like, I am black, gay. <laughs> like a single parent household and like I know that y'all need some of me at your school so like I'm doing this to pitch myself (laughs) but like if we're in a conference and we're just a social setting or you know a conference is not necessarily a social setting it's a learning environment but regardless there's not anything at stake for me to be performing about like it's just for me to get my learning then like I'm not going to just be waving my dandies around um, just to get an elicit a reaction out of people. And it doesn't really serve me in any way because I already have so many visible uh, marginalized identities that like anything that I might reveal that gives me a little edge of privilege or that maybe makes people think of me even more as woe is you. Um, I don't feel like it really tips the scales much in any way, one way or the other. Whereas I feel like for white women, at least I've noticed that it very much, at least the expectation for them when they say it is that it will tip the scales for them. And when it doesn't tip the scales for them, that becomes a whole nother conundrum, which I feel like was one of the things that this girl that I mentioned earlier and I were struggling with when we first encountered each other at that first conference was that that was how she was trying to connect with me. And I was like, so not here for it. Um, and so we got to break that too. So. My long would answer. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate to that, Amber. I think guilty is charged on that. To, to some regard. And that's why I've been so curious about why it is that I have been wielding my queer identity so much, but I definitely recognize that the way in which that I do that sometimes is very unhelpful and want to try and figure out new ways to interact with that piece of myself, even though it's really important to me that people know that about me. Um, and then with regard to your question, Manny, yeah, I mean, I think that I tend to be a very open book. So in certain regards, it's not very hard for me to walk into a room and share a lot of my identities. Um, But on the other hand, I think, yeah, it's still really hard to share like shadow pieces of myself. Like when I think about, for instance, what I shared on this podcast, like it's really tough to share pieces that are not ones that we feel proud of or that we want to identify with, like our role as an oppressor or when we do something racist or, for instance, if someone says something that's homophobic, even if they don't know that they're being homophobic or transphobic when they're saying that or misogynistic in um, a small action that they're taking. And, um, yeah, I think those pieces are really hard to own. But I think unless we do take the time to own them and to speak about them, we often just turn a blind side to them and don't do anything with them and we hide in our comfort in different ways. So, um, yeah, it sucks. And also, you know, even if you're not always saying them out loud, I think it's important to work with them. But um, I think overall it's definitely uh, a struggle to show up in our fullness, you know, no matter what. And as was said earlier, I think by Rod, like you can never – share all pieces of yourself or know all pieces of another person or another culture or anything like that. So we all just kind of have to do the best that we can. Yeah. I think just the balance of like wanting to be seen 
in your fullness, um, but like not so much that it becomes like a song and dance. Because like at the end of the day, you can tell someone literally every social identity marker you have, and they're going to create their own work vision <laughs> of all of that too. So I feel like, and one thing I'm thinking about too, and you mentioned, I think in a recent ish podcast, is like your development in this area um, is relatively newer, and so like. Similarly to like the whole like awakening of like, oh shit, I deauthorize Asian people. Like, let me really dig into that. So, like that's something you're probably gonna be hyper vigilant about for like the next year, two years, three years, whatever. Um, and I think similarly it's like, okay, I have this identity that like as someone who's 30 has only been a part of my life for a very small fraction of that time. So like this is something that I wanna be able to be conscious about and like not have erased about me. But like how do I sh- you know, find that balance of like pride with also like remembering that there's also all these other layers of me too so it's like okay i'm not just a white girl i'm queer and it's like okay well you're not just a white queer girl either you're a lot as well so like how do we balance it all out yeah definitely and thanks for that um i guess it's yeah the struggle for everyone no matter what identities that you hold or you know what shadow pieces of yourself you are dealing with or working with is trying to find the balance within your your own authority that you're giving to yourself or other people are giving to you and working to not, you know, um, just working to figure out a way to wield those in a way, at least from my perspective, that's most helpful for, you know, society at large, especially in those places where the, those shadow sides do kind of pop up and it can be challenging, but that's where boundaries and education and learning and growth are all so important. And again, why group relations spaces are so helpful. Yeah, it, it, it is that. It, it, I'll agree, Lauren. It is the self-development piece. Um, and this self-development can actually go in different aspects of your life where any of the topics that we talked about showed up. Um, I think the big takeaway is understanding that when we talk about boundaries, role, uh, an authority. Um, it's to have you understand that when you come to the conference, those are the those are the key components you're always going to um, have as your foundations, especially in group relations work. Um, the other piece about this is is that the group relations conferences are the spaces where you can come and and do trial and error. It's very difficult to do trial and error at work, at home, when you don't have the foundation through a group relations conference. Um, so I think, you know, what we spoke to was just to kind of give listeners, you know, an idea of the challenges that we face when dealing with boundaries, when dealing with authority and role, especially when we are the individuals holding up all of those um, and being able to identify, you know, what are my own boundaries? Like, what are my boundaries around my friends? What are my boundaries around my family? What are my boundaries around my classmates and, and workmates and things like that? And when am I crossing those boundaries? When am I going beyond the boundary? Is it just when I'm listening to the actual podcast or is it in times of my life where, you know, I can think about other levels, other places that I can grow into? And so that's what I would say about um, today's today's conversation. I want to thank my co-hosts for being here today and, and for having this conversation and for sharing the vulnerable pieces in your experiences. I appreciate that. Um, do, do you all have any last words before we sign off? We good? Okay, awesome. 
Well, thanks everybody for listening in today. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you got a little piece of something to take in for yourself. And maybe you can identify some, some experiences that you have your own with boundaries, authority, and role and see how those show up. Um, looking forward to our next episode, y'all. Until then, take care of yourselves and each other. This has been a Group Relations podcast sponsored by Group Relations International.